calling it? What do you want to call it? I wanted it to be uh, uh, working for Crusoe. Okay. Three, two, and one. Working for Crusoe. Sam Park and John Ramey with you. Uh, international affairs and economics. Because it's Friday. Right. Get it? <laughs> and, uh, well, no, you should probably explain it. It's pretty inside. You had to explain it to me. Well, Friday was the name of Robinson Crusoe's slave, apparently. But that was the other castaway that he encountered on the desert island right. that he, upon which he was shipwrecked. And in spite of the entire equality of their material uh, positions on the desert island, right. Crusoe said, okay, well, your name from now on is Friday, seemingly unconcerned that he might have already had a name. Right. Uh, and I'm... Typical your, Eurocentrist. Yeah, and I'm your master. Right. Uh, and... I guess, I guess, am I allowed to laugh at that? You're allowed to poke fun at it. Well, I mean, you know, it won't surprise anybody to learn that th that Robinson Crusoe is a favorite topic in post-colonial studies. Uh, because Did it you is, discuss this with Professor Said? I don't think Said ever actually wrote at any length about mm -hmm. Robinson Crusoe, because if only because he would have found it too obvious. Right. Uh, <laughs> but... It is one of the very earliest English novels published in, I think, 1713. Right. Uh, so the British colonial project at that point was very young. and, uh, and Just gathering steam. Yeah, but here it all is right here. Here's your name. Yeah, I'm your I am master. your master. Right? Right. And, this, and because the novel was such a novel, mm -hmm. young that is young form at the time, it's all done very matter-of-factly. There's no sort of flowery There's, language right. that we might you know, associate There's with. There's not a lot of artifice like yeah, Dickens. It's all right. very straight narrative. Fun. So this just happens as a matter of course. Huh. And so we don't know if Daniel Defoe, the author himself, didn't seem to have any real critical perspective upon these events that he was narrating. He just was telling you what happened. Right. This is the story. Yeah. And I, it's, it's always been fascinating for me. But of course, these are topics that in, that uh, we discussed routinely upon uh, in this podcast, right? right. Yeah. International affairs, economics, power relations, etc. The global, <laughs> yeah, for that, for that yeah. matter. Yeah, um, and this is a special edition because uh, we're in person. We've been doing this remotely, but uh, so we're not at the. We don't have any time restraints with regard to uh, internet. Uh, you know, except perhaps as in matters of taste, right? Sure. Not well, wanting to tax anybody's patience. That's good. No, I, I actually think it's a good little experiment because. You know, we've done enough episodes now where we have some feel for it. Sure. Plus, I have a running clock right here. In One would hope. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so tomorrow is Friday, February 24th. We're taping this on Thursday. We will yes. release it on Friday the 24th. It is the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, now, some Ukrainians would say that it's actually been nine years. Well, that's right. – so that was – yeah, because – there was the initial seizing of Crimea. As well as parts of the Donbass. Parts yes. of the Donbass, where they're still fighting. Yes, that's right. So just for the sake of tidiness, let's focus on the one-year anniversary we're celebrating, just for now. We can expand well, the conversation. I think celebrating might not be the word you want to use Acno there. Acknowledging. Yes. That, thank you. Uh, I just, you know, I, I went and looked at various estimates on casualties. Um you know, I have done some reading about previous conflicts 
and in particular previous European conflicts in the recent past, last 120 years, give or take. The consensus of estimates varies wildly because neither the Ukrainians nor the Russians are, are explaining. Uh, they're not being that candid about it, right? And, and that's just standard operating procedure. But um, the European Commission and the United States estimate for Ukrainian forces is 100,000 or more killed and wounded. So right. casualties, right? And I think it's important to remember when we talk about casualties, killed and wounded, you think, well, there's a big difference between being killed and being wounded. Yeah, but war wounds are not like a torn ACL. War wounds are not like I, I broke my arm falling down, right? These are life-shattering wounds in many cases. That's right. So th while it's not death, it's the worst thing apart from death. And sometimes, depending on it, could be worse. So over 100,000. And then on the Russian side, the U.S. estimate is 150,000 killed and wounded. Um, civilians, those numbers are... You know, there's a little bit more variance. The U.S. estimate is 40,000 killed and wounded uh, civilians in Ukraine. Wow. And, of course, we had 8 million flee and another 8 million displaced. So that's 16 million out of a country of 41 million. Yes, although it's, I think some of those 8 million fled have since returned. Right. Uh, and so I don't know if we can aggregate all of that. But still, uh, let's pretend they all return. That's still yeah. eight million people leaving. That's, that's right. a, a massive exodus. Some of, of whom against their will. Yeah, and, and many of them we can presume did not survive. Some, yeah, that we, yeah. We, have, we have to assume that some of them did not. So the scale of this is unlike anything we've ever seen in our lifetimes. Uh, it's yeah that's, in Europe. Yes, correct. And uh, uh, now it's. I would say it's not all that routine, even outside of Europe, which we can uh, – that's still an alarmingly high number for right. just about any place. But these would exceed uh, casualties – well, uh, let me couch that. These exceed U.S. casualties in Vietnam, for example. Oh, by far. Blow them away, <clears throat> yeah. right? The United States had, what, 60,000 dead in 13 years in Vietnam or Something whatever like it was. That, yeah. Right. So, so – We're past that. We're past that. Yeah, yeah. Way past that. Yeah. I mean, truly, it is the most significant military event since the Second World War. Maybe Korea. Uh, well, you mean, it, uh, I, you know, I don't, uh, again, in Europe, I don't, Korea would be. I don't think we need to. Yeah. Oh, in Europe, but yeah, certainly yeah, by far. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah Korea is an interesting case. And I actually did not. I should have pulled up those numbers, too. Well, um, I think it's it's can be very. For instance, ever since a year ago. Uh, I've sort of been assuming that the United States is on something resembling a Cold War footing. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly the same, uh, for one thing, because there's so much more trade that we do uh, than we ever did with our Cold War adversaries. But, but it's as close as we've come to a Cold War footing since the end of the Cold War. And much as Korea was the first hot theater of the Cold War, uh, I think Ukraine is the same for this iteration of the Cold War. Uh, and uh, 
plays the same role. In other words, as soon as the Korean War started, everybody pretty much knew the Cold War was on. Right. Right. It got everybody lined up on each side real quick. Pretty. Yeah. And we're, uh, and I think in the same is the case is the case for Ukraine today. It's pl- playing that same sort of role in this version of the Cold War that Korea did in the previous one. Now, I don't want to be um, I don't want to be insensitive, but prior to the start of this new Cold War, we would look back on things like Korea and Vietnam, which were terrible and people, you know, thousands of people died. But Korea and Vietnam are contained regional conflicts and there was no nuclear exchange. There was no World War Three. So in in some sense, the fact that Korea and Vietnam happened in place of a nuclear confrontation between the Soviet Union and the Western Allies is a success. For the Western Allies, sure, or for, or for all the Western for the, powers. Or for right. the world yeah. that didn't have a nuclear winter. But obviously, if you get killed in the war, it's not a success. That's right. If you live in divided Korea, if you live in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War, it's not a success. But do you understand my, my yes, but I think sentiment you, there? I think you can understand that it's vexatious, let's say, sure. to be taking part in somebody else's proxy war. Right. Uh, and that's, you know... If you're one of the participants in it, if you are aware of that dynamic... You don't give a damn. Or yeah. you, you could understand if people don't give a damn. Yeah. Uh, and uh, about the proxy war, that is, right? And so when you might ask yourself, why should we be the ones oh. to have to suffer for somebody else's conflict? Right. So my question to you then is, as this war in Ukraine goes on and this Russian attempting to increase their annexation of Ukraine drags on now into year two or year nine, right? Depending on who you ask or how you want to define it. Does it just become in that kind of callous way? This is a net positive, not for the people involved in the war, but for the rest of the world, avoiding a nuclear exchange. Or is that the wrong way to look at it? I think that is the wrong way to look at it. In other words, I think that was very, that's, I would say another difference between this iteration of the cold war and the previous one. Uh, is that I don't think there was any real danger of there being a nuclear conflict between the United States and Russia prior to this war, right? This war has... Truman had to fire MacArthur, Korea. Okay, fine. Uh, Get a high-ranking guy. But the the point is that there might have been in danger of a nuclear war before Korea even started. Fair enough. All right, which there almost certainly was not one before. In other words... The, the launch of this particular part of the war of Ukraine has increased the, right. the chance of nuclear exchange dramatically in a way that I don't think Korea did. Sure. Fair enough. Um, and right on cue, Vladimir Putin has um, indicated that Russia is withdrawing from start. Okay. He said now, that, but he's vacillated a little bit. He right? said he didn't. He never said withdraw yeah. to begin with. Right. Okay. He said suspend. Suspend. He would that Russia would suspend its participation in the New START treaty, which basically means we're not going to honor it. Yes, but is more discreet communications between ourselves and the Russians uh, have indicated that the Russians have no intention of altering their existing nuclear posture. Uh, now they've been that's che- good right? yes it, it's very good it, now yeah. they've been cheating a little bit we think here and there as it is but they don't seemingly intend to to escalate the the uh the level of their 
deployment of nuclear arms. Uh, and let's be fair, they've, they drop this all the time. Right? I mean, this is certainly not the first time in the past year that the Russians have said something like this. Uh, they seem to just, you know, every month or two want to make sure to remind everybody that they have nuclear weapons as if we've somehow forgotten. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm not saying we shouldn't be alarmed by something like this, but it's uh, nor should we be overly alarmed. I uh, I don't speak any Russian. Do you, I, you don't speak. Nor Russian. do I. No. I, I have a friend who uh, who does speak it. I'll have to ask him what the Russian term for saber rattling is, because I suspect there's probably a phrase for that. I would imagine so. Yeah, yes. there's been a lot of that. I mean, throughout the whole. Well, if this. you're at war, then, you know. No, but in particular, the nuclear saber rattling. Oh, sure. But in, again, we already knew they had nuclear weapons. And right. so if something like this was going to happen, those weapons are automatically on the table. I mean, as soon as the war started, people were talking about it, even without the Russians saying anything. Every, I mean, you and I consume a fairly stream, a fairly consistent stream of media of experts, scholars, journalists um, who have covered Russia, Ukraine, this region, the Putin regime. It's exhausting. Yeah. It's, it's, it's phenomenally complicated. And the one thing that I keep arriving at, and I know you and I have talked about this, is that the longer and more horrific, the longer this war goes on, the more horrific it is. It is... Uh, it's unavoidable to me to start rethinking the Obama administration's posture about Putin. And in particular, and I said this to you last night, you know, Obama enters power. And again, his vice president is Joe Biden, who's, I think, doing a, a very uh, has a much different posture and has done a, a commendable job leading the Western alliance. But Obama enters office after two disastrous foreign adventures, right? These terrible wars in Iraq and Afghanistan with flimsy justification. Well, in Iraq anyway. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, okay. Flimsy justification in Iraq and t poor vision, execution, definition of success. I mean, two Vietnams, essentially, more or less, right? The casualty counts were, casualty counts lower, were much lower. But still the same problem of the giant imper uh, imperial U.S., Going somewhere and not really understanding how to win or, or not really being able to define. Okay, I'll go along with that. So it seems that then Obama is almost – he almost had – I don't – I feel like Obama was smart enough to understand what Putin was up to and was also trying to change the narrative of American foreign policy. So he kind of just punts. On these little incursions and these invasions, you get you understand. I think saying? yeah, I think that's that's uh, on target. Uh, for one thing, if it wasn't for the disasters, especially in Iraq, mm -hmm. uh, Obama might never have become president. Right, that was what differentiated sure. him from Hillary Clinton in the primary right, process. He, was, he came out right. against it. Now yeah. maybe he would have won those primaries against her even without. Uh, the war in Iraq, but I I don't think we can assume that he would have. Interesting. Uh, and so once he gets into office, it's difficult for someone like him, just politically, to sure. to want to suddenly engage in a hot military conflict, which he seemed to go out of his way to avoid. To avoid. Uh, and that's 
uh, a difficult thing for someone like myself to admit because I admired Barack Obama so very much. So let's just – and me too. So let's just run down the things that now with the benefit of hindsight, right, if Barack Obama – if the United States foreign policy starting in 2009 – uh, you know, the people who make the foreign policy frame it, understand that this war is happening. You probably what have a more robust. Uh, well, you give arms to the Ukrainians earlier. Well, you, there's you, that. You, I think one thing that, you, that are more vociferous about condemning are you do you condemn the Georgian invasion? Like, well, that actually was before that's the election, 08, right? Yeah. That's oh, eight. Uh, and I think uh one of the main things that I think people would point to is the red line that ended up being erased in Syria, Syria. and that was 2013. Yeah, uh, and Assad uses chemical weapons. Exactly, we, and we do. The West does nothing. That's right. And now, one thing they said at the time was that after that, Assad agreed to a mechanism for ridding himself of chemical weapons, and that's what happened. At the, and that was the the justification given at the time for not intervening militarily. Uh, but that, I think, was probably too trusting of Assad. And it wasn't until the, a year later, or it wasn't until shortly after that, I believe. I might be wrong about this. But I don't think the Russians were deeply involved in Syria until after that. Mm. Uh, and, of course, they annexed Crimea uh, and began to intercede in the Donbass the following year, right. 2014. So that, I think, is one of the – a lot of people point to as sort of the original sin of the Obama foreign policy was the red line in Syria that was erased. Because if you work backwards – and again, this is the privilege of history. You get to work backwards, right? You see, oh, Putin thinks he can completely wipe Ukraine off the map, destroy the post-Second World War world order, and – the West won't care. And you start kind of compiling the things that went down leading up to this. And you can see how in his, you know, skewed worldview, he could have come to that perhaps convenient conclusion. I, I mean, yeah, I think that the convenient part is, is the important part there. In other words, if I give you I'm certainly not defending know, it, if no, I know you're not, but if I give you an apple, right, that doesn't mean that you should have all the apples, right? Uh, and that everybody's just going to be okay with that, right? Uh, and now I'm not saying that, that uh, Obama didn't make any mistakes back then. But uh, if you think of the justifications that Putin rhetorically has anyway given for this war, they're insane, right? I mean, they, they, they just, are uh, insane. They, you know, so the idea that, okay – you know, you have intervened in Syria and you've taken part of Ukraine. Now, we're, you know, you're just going to uh, uh, obliterate the place. I mean, it's just it's just madness. Well, Timothy, right? uh, Timothy Snyder. Yes, the Yale historian who yeah. we both watched an interview with uh, recently on PBS. Um, I mean, he is so good at reminding everybody that. U.S. foreign policy didn't really impact Putin's thinking on this. Right. And, and or at least not determinatively. Right. That's and, right. And, and we have this idea as the sole superpower that everything that anybody does is somehow a reaction to what, what we do. And it's just, good or bad. Right. And it's just absurd. Right. Uh, uh, now, don't misunderstand me. You know, we need to make very uh, uh, reasoned policy decisions going forward at every juncture. Right. But. 
the idea that that every single thing we do is what's going to change what happens in every part of the world that you know it's absurd right many of those things will right but not all not of everything them. yeah all right so we have detailed the obama's the obama administration's foreign policy and their kind of um, well, before we move on from there, there's one one more thing I'd like to say. Okay, please. Is that the idea that that uh, Putin, in particular, and Russia in general were people we could just sort of work with and manage was a bipartisan foreign policy consensus no in question. the United States. Not it was not a universally held idea, right. but there were people on both sides of the aisle Absolutely. who subscribed to this line of thinking. That's all. W. Bush. Uh, George W. Bush famously saw Putin's soul. Yes, he, he and, got a sense of his soul yeah. after looking into his and, eyes. And so one would – you could extrapolate from that that therefore George W. Bush thought he could work with Vladimir Putin. Oh, he very much did think so, yes. So we won't even discuss Trump because as Professor Snyder detailed so eloquently in his PBS interview, Trump was a, a bonanza, a godsend every day for the Russians. Yes. And, and uh, so now you get Joe Biden who was Obama's vice president and has been perhaps not surprisingly, now that we think about what Joe Biden has done in public life, he is not surprisingly incredibly clear eyed about Russia, what the invasion means, what a belligerent Russia means, not only for the United States, but for the West NATO. I mean, it's almost, it's almost as if he had worked his entire public life for this moment well in he a, was in the senate when the uh, original cold war was not just that but one of the things that that people worry about in terms of joe biden is how old he is he's at 80 years old but being 80 years old may, means that he's only old enough to not just remember the cold war but to remember all of it all of it uh whereas you know I so could, the soviets get the nuke get nukes in 49 Yes. So Biden, it Biden would remember that. Yes, barely, maybe, right? Yeah. Uh, but he would have been a small child. Sure. Right. Uh, but you know, you and I can only remember the last couple of decades of the Cold War, and you can only remember the last. I one. only remember right. it ending. Right. Yeah. And so, and and I think this speaks to one of the sort of puzzles I've had about it is in that we know that a public support for uh, arming Ukraine by the United States has been gradually, slowly falling amongst the American population. But if you think about it genera generationally, yeah. it makes more sense. It, now that the millennials are the largest generation in this country, only the oldest of them can remember anything That's right. about the Cold War. That's right. And the, the, even they can only remember the end of it. I mean, my younger, Barely. My younger brother is an elder millennial. I am X along with you. Right. And, you know, well, I was 11 when the Berlin Wall came down. So he met, he probably remembers that. Right. But he's he, seven. Exactly. It's not, you know, yeah. But it didn't alter his whole. No, the good guys had kind of already won by the time millennials start remembering. That's things. right. And and so there, there's no reason that the Cold War should be as alarming to them as it is to us. Uh, and so. It might well, be. these young whippersnappers need to learn a no, thing or but two. It, we might have to show some patience yeah. with them. For example, the, I would, the, there is an upside to that. 
Uh, for instance, I think it was mainly millennials and people younger than them who were a couple weeks ago were sort of laughing it up on the internet and going, seriously, we're going to be scared of a balloon now? Well, right, you're Pete? right, and, and that's the correct posture. It is, right? And and that's and I think the whole balloon episode sort of spoke to a resurgence of the early Cold War period when all of a sudden, you know, it's the missile gap. Or, or Sputnik. Yeah, or, you know, uh, McCarthy or what have you, where there is this panic that sees the American population in the very early parts of the Cold War. Just to point out, the missile gap, not real. No, it wasn't real, right? <laughs> and neither is the balloon gap. Right. Okay, right. And by the way, if the, if the balloon gap is real, Fine. who really cares? I mean, it's a balloon. We have satellites. But uh, yeah. anyway, we've already yeah. talked too much about the balloon. <laughs> so Joe Biden um, was in the Senate and <clears throat> remembers the whole of the Cold War, understands, I mean, has swum in the waters of the Western alliance post-World War II, you know. His whole life. His whole public life. And and I guess also, and, and I was not as conscious of this at the time, but we come to find out now that as vice president, he was kind of tasked with Russia uh, in the Obama administration. So um, certainly it has seemed many times in Joe Biden's public life that he is not the man uh, for the hour. Uh, And yet here he is. And I I don't know if, again, I don't think he's been perfect. I don't think the American response to this has been perfect, but I don't, I can't imagine a scenario where it would have been better handled. I agree with you entirely. And I know we don't talk about domestic politics much on this podcast, but. Well, it directly impacts foreign policy. It does in this case, yeah. right? And so, uh, I've, as I've mentioned to you before, uh, offline, uh, I think many people uh, in the past few years recently have underestimated Joe Biden. Uh, and I think that this. In other words, because he remembers the Cold War, he knew exactly what to do uh, uh, almost instantly and by instinct. Yeah, by uh, rote. Yeah, yeah, in a way that someone else might not have. Including somebody as bright as Barack Obama. Exactly. And uh, I think, for instance, uh, one of the most eloquent statements about this war that he made, I think, was last year's speech in Warsaw when he said that – Putin had essentially declared war on the whole idea of being Ukrainian. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was so grateful to him for saying that because already by that time, I'd already heard many people in the West, intelligent people, uh, say things like, Putin has already lost. And I just found it incredibly jarring to hear things said like this uh and i'm i have no military expertise whatsoever uh but even i could tell that this was wrong right all right uh and it seems to me that people were outlining putin's strategic goals in strictly and overly strictly military terms right so, well he has been able to do this that and the other thing and i'm like okay but if his goal is to destroy the idea of being ukrainian then Every inch of territory that he holds is a win. That's Every right. Ukrainian he kills is a win. Every building, city, village, town that he destroys, which is a number of them, is a win. Every Ukrainian child that 
is spirited out of the country is a win. Uh, and so Putin may not – Putin himself doesn't have an extensive military background. No, he's a spy. That's right. And so I don't think that his strategic goals are necessarily military in nature predominantly. Right. They're more sort of historical, political even cultural yeah. goals, uh, that, and the military is only the means by which to carry out these things. LeGron, <laughs> stop that. <laughs> See, we have a live taping, and we have a live cat here. Yeah, it's an ideological goal. Correct, yeah. I mean, listen, I don't want to... We, we've avoided invoking this name, but you know, that's more like Hitler. Sure, but you know, I mean, uh, many people have... have you don't have to be as bad as Hitler to be a totalitarian, right? Uh, and but that's why it's so important that that's why it's important that these lines are drawn. You exactly. do not want to empower somebody who decides to wipe a country off the face of the earth because of ideology. Okay, the, I look. I agree with that ent- entirely. But these things, I feel, are not necessarily well understood by the general population, and, and good reasons too, as you mentioned. Like you know, not everybody remembers the Cold War. That's right, and and you know, even someone I like to think of myself as being rather well informed. But even I only read Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism three three years ago. Right. Right. Uh, and. I'm ashamed that I never read it earlier because it explains so much about what was going on then and even more about what's going on today. Uh, And I would recommend to anybody that they read it if they can stand being extraordinarily disturbed for however many weeks it takes them to read it. I would like to repeat what you told me when I said, oh, I need to read that. You said, just read 1984 for now. Right. (laughs) Which I did. And spoiler alert, it's the scariest book you could read probably apart from Hannah Arendt. Right. And, and, and I, and I managed to read 1984 immediately after reading the origins of totalitarianism. And it felt like the fictional sequel to Hannah Arendt, right? Where Arendt explains, this is how we get there. And Orwell then takes the ball and says, and this is what happens after. Uh, And it, it was profoundly impactful for me. And, you know, Maybe not the best choice of reading during the pandemic, but there you go. That's what I did. (laughs) Everybody wants to talk about what comes next. I mean, clearly, Vladimir Putin is prepared to shove, I guess, the whole of his military might into a meat grinder. Well, he's shoving it in there every day. Uh, Um, The weather's getting better and they're starting another offense. Side note, it is borderline absurd to me how in this world of technology in the 21st century – you still have to wait for springtime to start your war in Russia or in, in Ukraine, right? Like, yes, and you, you can fight a war in the winter, kind of like Battle of the Bulge. There are examples, but generally, and in that part of the country, in that part of the world, you got to wait for spring. Yes, and it's anachronistic. It's that aspect of the war that actually has a very large bearing on what will happen for the rest of this year and beyond. In other words. It's it is a very twentieth century, so almost even nineteenth century sort of war where it's just cannon, yeah. right? And, and uh, what do we call it? Ranks? Yes, right. And trenches yeah. and, and and an actual front line, which by which is terrible. I mean, that's the it's carnage. Yes, it's terrible. But the the 
another problem with that is, and I'm sure you've heard in the past couple of weeks, is that the Ukrainians are actually sending a warning to their Western backers that they're running out of ammunition, bullets, cannon shells, artillery shells. This right? happened in the First World War. Exactly. Right. And it's, mind you, Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, I think it was yesterday or perhaps the day before, also complained that the Russian military command wasn't giving the Wagner Group enough ammunition. This now, is the super evil mercenary. Yes. Outfit. Now, nothing that Yevgeny Prigozhin says is something that we should take at face value. I mean, this right. may or may not be true. Uh, but, for example, when Pearl Harbor happened, the United States had an enormous amount of unemployed workers and unused factory capacity. We don't have either of those things right now. Uh, and so the the speed with which we can ramp up uh, production of conventional munitions is actually rather limited. Right. Uh, and this could be a problem in the near term. So in terms of what happens next... All right, that, explain that. What's wrong if both sides just run out of bullets? Well, I think what, as we've discussed in the past, it's easier... Uh, in a couple of different ways for Vladimir Putin to move his economy to a full wartime economy, which he's essentially already done. Right. It's a command if, economy. He yeah, can just if make If Putin says, I'm taking over your factory to make munitions, the factory owner's not going to say, well, you know, he's not going to argue with them. Right. Right. There goes your factory. Right. That We're not going to do that here. Uh, and so it's possible that uh, that they can ramp up production um, much faster than we can. Also, as we've discussed before, uh, manufacturing in Russia just isn't as advanced as it is here. So it's easier to retool. It's easier to like, retool literally a, a, your yeah. average Russian factory right. than it is, you know, one of our factories that's full of robots that are designed to make whatever electric cars. Yeah, whatever right. or whatever yeah. that particular company right. wants that factory to make. Right. There's not as much standardization uh, because right. everything's very bespoke. Right. So we can't just hope they run out of bullets and put flowers and guns. No, and uh, another uh, uh, complaint I've heard uh, is that uh, defense contractors are saying things like, okay, you can say you're going to provide weapons, but we need a piece of paper, right? We are called contractors, right? We need contracts. If we're going to ramp up our production facilities, right. you know, we uh, have to have an agreement. We, yeah, you have to tell us what you know uh, what what the deal is. Uh, and again, Putin doesn't have to do things like this, right? But uh, it, I think it's possible, and this is just me thinking out loud here with no expertise whatsoever. I want to make sure I remind people about that. But if uh, production of standard munitions falls behind in the Western world, that might actually uh, speed the process of providing things like planes. Oh, right? oh in other I words, if we can't, if we're not going to be able to, to give you enough artillery shells, well, well, we'll probably just have to give you planes instead. Uh, and I kind of, you know, I'm one of the people who thinks they just should provide the planes anyway. Uh, but that's not my decision to make, obviously. How long does this thing go on for? Well, uh, 
in my video series that will go up tomorrow. Uh, hang on a minute. Yes, hang available on, a minute. on YouTube. That's right, and on internets everywhere. That's right. Uh, I I said that uh, this time next year, I expect to tell us that we're entering the third year of the war. Right. I don't think it'll be over in another year. Hopefully, it won't take a lot longer than that. But and I hope I'm wrong. Right. I really hope that that the war can be ended this year. That would be fantastic. Uh, but if you look at the speeches that Biden and Putin made this week, along with other people, uh, they both seem to be digging in for a lengthy conflict. And they know more about this than I do. I mean, that's the scary thing for me is that Biden understands that <clears throat> there's got to be strength and there needs to be endurance. And that may take some time. And he's old. Yeah. Even if he wins a second term, you know, I just I, I worry about him surviving long enough to provide leadership. I agree. Uh, but again, let's not underestimate him. Right. Right. Uh, which I, I think many of us I know I have done so. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think many other people have in different ways also. I mean, did you see either? of? Uh, I only saw a couple of them. I don't think there are many more. But did you see any of the photos of the, from the Associated Press of Biden on the overnight train? No. Oh, they're fantastic. I mean, I mean, it looked, it literally looked like it was out of From Russia with Love, right? One of my very favorite sure. James Bond films yeah. that takes place on a train, yeah. right? Uh, that is, it's one of my favorite James Bond films, and, and it takes place yeah. on a train. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the dark train and, you know, sure. the, the compartment, it's fantastic. And Biden wears a well-cut suit. Sure. Just like Commander and, and Bond. he's sitting there yeah. with, with Jake Sullivan, and they've got, you know, pieces of paper out on the desk. But I really hope, and I'm very confident, right, that what happened was Biden gets on the train. He sits there with Jake Sullivan for a couple photos, and then he goes to sleep, right? And then he sleeps the entire rest of the nine-and-a-half-hour train ride into Kiev, right? He gets out. He's on the ground in Kiev for five hours, right? Then he gets back on the train, and I hope he went right back to sleep right then, right? Uh, which is what he should do. I mean, there were air raid sirens when he was there. Yeah. They, did, they did tip yeah. off the Russians. They said, you know, our president will be here yeah, it's in your interest to not kill him. Yes, exactly. And I think, you know, uh now I don't know what happened and neither do you, obviously. And and uh but if if Biden's going to be visiting the combat zone, I think that contact between us and the Russians probably rises to the level of Secretary of State Anthony Blinken yeah. calling Soviet I'm sorry, Russian Foreign Minister Sergey Lavrov on the phone. But once it gets to that level, as soon as the call goes through, I think it's a pretty short conversation, right? Uh, you know, Lavrov picks up the phone, he knows who it is, and Blinken says, "Okay, so you know why I'm calling, right?" Uh, and Lavrov goes, "Yeah, I think I do." Right? And then Blinken says, "Okay, good." So we're not going to have any trouble, right? Are yeah, we? Yeah. Right. And Lavrov says, "No, we're not going to." And he says, okay, that's terrific. Now I'm going to send you in by email a couple of PDFs. One will be in English and one will be in Russian, but they'll be the same, right? Uh, so you know, have your people take a look at them. Yeah. Like, let me know if you have any questions. Otherwise, enjoy your weekend. Yeah. Right. I don't. I mean, I don't think there's much more to it than that at no. that point. No. Anything else you want to hit on? I mean, I mean, I could go on about this for 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 quite some time. I just want—I'm happy, in a grim sort of way—that there is no more sort of triumphalist rhetoric 
that we saw at the beginning of the war. This, the, all this Putin has already lost nonsense, just nonsense, right? Uh, uh, this whole thing about the, sh- the artillery shells, you know, this is a serious problem that won't be solved overnight. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can talk about strategic goals, etc., as much as you want. Uh, but if you don't have enough shells, well, you know, your strategy doesn't really matter. Uh, and so that is one of the only upsides of the public discussion of the war, but it's a very ominous sign for the war itself. I'm going to tell everybody who cares, Google uh, World War One shell shortage. It was a scandal in England, scandal in Britain. Yeah, as well. But, you know, the, again, there are there are things that that I mean, uh, I guess that's why I, I think that's why you and I are so deeply disturbed by this war, apart from just the, the human carnage is that. If you know the history of the 20th century, if you know the history of Europe in the 20th century, you can see scenarios that don't involve nuclear weapons whatsoever where this gets very bad. That's right. And uh, it's just another reminder that history is never over, right? I mean, things are going to keep happening. And uh, how we react to things today make a difference for tomorrow. And, yeah, we're going to get some things wrong, right? Uh, and we have to hope that the things we're getting wrong aren't so catastrophically wrong that they end up having very, very dire impacts down the road. Maybe, you know, one or two of them probably will, but we have to hope we can manage those. Very difficult. Very difficult. 